Hi, I'm Chris McBrien, a Gen Xer, and the pop culture from my generation is awesome. And I'm Yance Eaton, a millennial, and the pop culture from my generation is dope. Episode 85, the top five Queen songs. Chris McBrien, along with Yancey Eden, but Yancey Eden is still on vacation. So once again, we're joined by our great friend and good uh, fan of the podcast here and regular guest, and that's K-Ban himself, Derek Byers. Derek, how are you, my friend? I'm doing great, Chris. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing good. You know, I like I mentioned, Yancey's on vacation. I, I'm expecting when he gets back to have a really, really good tan. <laughs> although, although I guess he lives in southern or southern uh, Florida, so he's probably got a good tan already. I, he, maybe, should be, he should just look like George Hamilton all the time. You know? <laughs> maybe he went somewhere cool, like a skiing trip, and he'll come back without a tan, and that's how he'll distinguish himself from his neighbors. Yeah, I guess so. So, uh, so what's going on with you? Uh, you know what? Not a whole lot. Been uh, been a pretty uh, pretty busy week for me personally. Uh, but uh, in the world of pop culture, it's been a very sad week. Mm-hmm. We uh, we had uh, a few. Uh, deaths in the world of pop culture. Uh, the one that definitely struck the hardest for me uh, was the death of comic book creator Stan Lee, best known for uh, being one of the creators of Marvel Comics. He created uh, dozens, if not hundreds of characters, Spider-Man, the X-Men, uh, the Avengers, Iron Man, Thor, the Hulk, the whole slew of the Marvel characters. If they're a Marvel character, there's a good chance Stanley had his fingers in the pie when they were created. Uh, he was 95 years old. He lived a long life. He lived a great life. Uh, you know, he lived the life of a rock star. Who are we kidding? From a, from a pop culture point of view, uh, you know, the man did what he loved. Uh, although he didn't get into comic books until I, I think it was his early 40s. I mean, he lived till his mid 90s. Like, there's there's so much to say about Stan Lee. Uh, we should probably do a whole podcast on him. You know what? Yeah, I definitely I, I won't take up the full hour now. But uh, when you do that, if you could invite me on, I would certainly appreciate it. Stan, as a big comic book guy, uh, you know, I never got a chance to meet Stan Lee. I never got a chance to go to the cons and have my picture taken. But uh, it's, uh, you know, when celebrities die – some of them will affect you more than others, depending on how important they were to you, even if you never met them. And uh, a few celebrities over the course of my years that have passed recently have struck me hard. Like when David Bowie died and Leonard Nimoy died, like I felt something when they died. I felt a loss. When Stan Lee died, I, you know, I felt that way as well. He was one of those uh, pop culture icons that that had a huge, huge impact on my life personally based on the works that he produced in his life. And uh you know, we're going to miss him. Yep. If he, I'll tell you what, if Yancey's still away next week, I'll have you back and we'll do Stan Lee next week. How's that sound? That'd be great. All right. Sounds good. So not to... Uh, not, not, the, not the only death either, was not it? Not the only yeah. death. So uh, another, uh, another, what we'll call him celebrity, William Goldman died at 87. And although people may not know his name as well as they know the name of Stan Lee, uh, William Goldman uh, was a famous screenwriter in Hollywood. I personally uh, know, well, I don't personally know him, but I... I Best remember him for uh, writing The Princess Bride, which as a big fantasy guy, I love the book. I love the movie. And that's that's how the name resonates with me. But he was also a screenwriter. He won two Oscars for uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and All the President's Men. Yes, he did. Oh, and both of them are so good. And, you know, if you think back to Butch Cassidy, that scene at the end when the two of them are there, when Newman and Redford are there at the end and they know they're done. They know they're done. Yeah. 
and just the conversation that they have before they run out. Man, yeah. man, oh man, Goldman was a talented screenwriter. And to take something like uh, Woodward and Bernstein's book and turn it into a, like, how do you make that into a movie? Like, like really, when you look at it, like, how do you put that on film? Like, it's so hard and it's so complex and there's so many characters. And, you know, when you're talking about all these lower level characters are going on, like, like, like Colson and Don Segretti and all these guys, like, how do you make this a tangible screenplay? But he did. And he did it so, so effectively. Oh, it was just so good. And really, I mean, he was the one that came up with Follow the Money. That was that wasn't uh, uh, Woodward Woodward's line that that Deep Throat said. Like Goldman put that into the script, right? And it's become part of the lexicon now, especially with what's going on in the United States right now with the current administration. It's like follow the money, follow the money, and that's that's Goldman's line. So yeah, he was a heck of a guy. So uh, sort of tangent on that. One of the uh, one of the things you've heard me talk about before. One of the podcasts that I really enjoy is on the Ringer dot com, and uh, they do a podcast called the Rewatchables, where they take movies they love and they just gush about them for two hours. And they have all these categories they talk about, and it's usually a really great podcast. The podcast that's up right now, the newest one that came out about ten days ago, is on all the president's men it's oh, nice. almost like they knew this was the time to do that movie wow. so if if you haven't seen the movie and uh you know the passing of william goldman is is intriguing you enough that you're like hey i want to go and watch something that he had a, had his fingers in the pie of this is a good one to do and if it's one that you know and love maybe check out their rewatchables podcast and uh you know re re well, I guess you're not going to watch it, but re-listen to it through their eyes and their ears and uh, and hear what they have to say. They usually have some pretty good insights and usually a lot of really good behind-the-scenes sort of uh, – I think they call it the half-ass internet research corner. Nice. Uh, yeah. Nice plug for those guys because they definitely do a good job over there. Okay. Are you ready to get started with this week's topic? Absolutely. Let's go. Oh, my God. <laughs> Is it – Jason Siegel or Jason Seagal? All right, I'll take your word for it. There's male frontal nudity in this, which I was not expecting. Oh my. Kind of artistic and actually really beautiful. You struggled with a lot of these, but like no problem getting Jason Siegel's penis. By the way, have we ever had a show without mentioning Star Wars? Try to be juvenile with your 69 jokes. Okay, so before we get started on our doing our running down our top five Queen songs, I wanted to mention a couple of things. So uh, before we get started, I wanted to bring up the fact, last week on the show, you mentioned that you saw the movie, the Freddie Mercury biopic, Bohemian Rhapsody. And then a day or two after we recorded that show, my mother-in-law shows up at my door. Always a harbinger of things to come for anyone, really, whenever the, your mother-in-law shows up. But anyway, so she basically shows up, knocks on the door and says to me and my wife, hey, why don't you two go out for a date night? And I'll tell you, as much as I appreciate, you know, the opportunity to go out, um, you know, trying to make plans at the last minute like that can be a little difficult. So we just decided to keep it easy and we'll go see a movie. So I said, you know, I just recorded a, a podcast with Caveman and he talked about Bohemian Rhapsody. So uh, Cave, we went to see it. I'm I'm nervous to hear where this goes next, Chris. <laughs> so it's it just so funny that we go into this because after we did that show last week, we were like, hey, next week we got to do our top five Queen songs. We're like, yeah, OK, so let's do it. And so then I decided to go see the movie. So um, now you really like the movie, you said, right? I, OK, so again, for many people who may not have listened last week or mm -hmm. who might have forgotten it already because they listen to 50,000 podcasts a week. I did enjoy it a lot, but. 
I will preface it by saying the movie does have problems in the sense that there's a little bit of revisionist history and some uh, glossing over of some very important parts of sort of the Queen story and some things that were adjusted to make for better storytelling. And that is getting a lot of uh, criticism in the media. But from my point of view, I get to sit in a dark theater for two and a half hours and hear all my favorite Queen songs and the performance by Remy Malek playing Freddie Mercury was outstanding. So that being said, Chris, what did you think? I thought the movie was okay. I didn't think it was anything special. I think I think you hit it on the things that you said. A couple of things I would have liked to have seen more of out of the movie was first of all the creative process behind the music. We saw it a little bit. You know, like with the when they put the coins on the drum set you know, I thought that was really cool. And then the scene where um, where Freddie's trying to coax that higher and higher note out of Roger Taylor, that was pretty cool. But I wish I could have seen more of that. I wanted to see the creative process. And, okay, this is where I'm going to get in trouble. This is where I'm going to get emails. I actually would have liked to have seen a little bit more of a, oh, God, I'm going to get in trouble, a, a, a more realistic portrayal of Freddie. And I, I know I'm in the minority here, but I didn't love Rami Malek's performance, I found it a little bit distracting. And um, I, I know there's a need to have an actor physically resemble the subject in a biopic. I get it. But it seemed to me, it seemed a little contrived, like just the fake teeth and he was sucking in his cheeks and stuff. I'm, I don't know. That was, ah, that was my thought. So, okay. So physical uh, appearance aside, one of the things that really impressed me was the fact that he still had to dance and perform and move like Freddie Mercury did. And mm-hmm. I've, I've seen a lot of uh, – like I'm a big music video guy. I've seen lots of music videos. I've seen a number of Queen uh, concerts and documentaries. And I mean I'm not an expert, but I'm a pretty big fan. And I felt that he nailed it pretty pretty much. And from what I've heard, uh, the whole part about Live Aid, it was very much – I mean spoilers for people who haven't seen it yet, but I think this isn't really so much a spoiler. There is large portions of the Queen Live Aid performance that are redone almost shot for shot. And from what I've heard and from what I've read in the media, his his uh, um, I don't want to say memory, but oh, that's probably a good word. Uh, his his portrayal of Freddie Mercury's moves was was v- very authentic looking, and and I enjoyed that. I appreciated that. I felt that they did a little bit of a disservice to Freddie, and especially in regard to his sexuality. It seemed to me that it almost came off like like being gay was a burden. On him and his creative process, when I think in reality it was the opposite. I'd say, you know, his sexuality was really important to his music and his persona. I mean, the band is named friggin' Queen, for crying out loud. <laughs> you know what I mean? And and I, I get the fact that it's it's PG-13, so, you know, they had to yeah. kind of tone it all down. But in all reality, K-Man, how many kids are really going to go see this movie? You know, why don't make the movie rated R and properly deal with all the issues at hand? Yeah, I, I think at the end of the day, I think it was dollars and cents. The studio mm-hmm. wanted more bums and seats, and to do that, you need to have a PG-13 rating. Um, so yeah, I, I, and I think I mentioned that last week. There are certainly parts of Freddie Mercury's life that would be uh, R-rated or even X-rated, uh, and, and it would have been interesting to see more of that in the movie without adding another hour to it. I know, I know things were different back then, and like it obviously takes place in the 60s and 70s and the 80s, right? Um, but it was, But it's being done now. Like, like I know, Nancy and I talk about this all the time on the podcast here, that, you know, times are different, you know, time, things were different back then. Homosexuality was not as openly accepted by a lot of people. I remember as a teenager, heck, I'm, I had like a lot of people that I knew would knock me because I liked Queen and they thought, oh, that's not cool to like them. 
But I didn't care. I liked them then. I like them now. Freddie is the greatest singer ever, ever. Agreed, and 100%. One thing that I'm going to sound really dumb, but I just got to say this. I, I Okay, jump all over me if you want. I never knew Freddie Mercury was like Indian. Or I guess he was Parsi, right? Like he was born in Zanzibar or, or whatever or grew up in India. Somewhere in the Middle East. Yeah, I, I thought I read that. somewhere Egyptian, one of the parents. Yeah. It, but yeah, to your point, not white Anglo-Saxon English. Like you hear him speak with an English accent yeah. as a young person. In I the thought 80s, he was just I a just white assumed, guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, and then I see the movie and he's got like these Indian parents. His sister looks is very Indian looking. And, and he's not like, I mean, he did a little bit in the movie. But it, to me, it, that caught me off guard. I didn't know that about Freddie. I just I thought he was just some white guy that, you know, was English and just saying um, Mike Myers character in the movie I thought was a little interesting. Um, I, I actually start, I remember I was sitting there with my wife and I actually started laughing before he even got his line out about, you know, banging heads in the back of the car. Yeah. Um, yeah. Littlefinger was in it. Yes. From, uh, from Game of Thrones. I was kind of impressed to see him because I kind of thought he was after doing Game of Thrones, he's just typecast. I didn't think we'd ever see him again. Um, so you mentioned the scene at the end when they show the band's performance at Live Aid. Now got to remember, okay, man, I'm old. I remember watching that on TV. Yeah, and, I remember watching parts of it, but I actually they reissued it on DVD like maybe five or ten years ago. So I have that, but that's that's where my memory comes from, not the original. I was actually amazed by that scene to see just how small the stage was. Like it, it struck me in the movie. I'm like, man, that, that stage is pretty small for like such a huge event. It felt like the stage was pretty small. Um, I. I don't know. I, I know you're saying that he got the moves and everything right, and, and I'm. it's not a slam on the movie or the actor. It's just so, so hard to capture just how bigger than life Freddie Mercury was. Like, watching him on stage perform was just incredible. He wasn't just the best rock singer and vocalist of all time. He was the best frontman of any band in the history of music. And that's really hard to recreate. So, I mean, yeah. they, they had their hands full. And the other thing that I noted was the uh, the actor who played Brian May, he looks so much like a young Howard Stern. I've always thought that, all like, not just from this movie, but from years before when I first, like, saw Howard Stern on television, not not knowing who he was and seeing him make appearances on, like, MTV. And I'm like, is that the guy from Queen? Where's the rest of the band? <laughs> Not realizing that they weren't the same guy for a long time. Yeah, he does look like him a lot. So uh, before we get into our top five, we decided uh, this week to run down our top five Queen songs. Uh, we'll go back and forth. Um, I thought it would be an interesting thing. Um, so, you know, if if you like Queen as much as, as Caveman and I do, you're going to love this list. And hopefully it's going to match up to yours or you're going to have things to say about it as you listen along. Um, but the one thing that I just wanted to mention right off the top, and we'll come back to it at the end. This is one situation where we're doing our top five. And it's all good. Um, but I think we both can agree on one thing, that the the number one uh, song of Queen of all time is Bohemian Rhapsody. So we both agree on that. But correct? Absolutely. Like, no, there, no there's question. no question. Like, there's no question. No we question. both like so we kind of decided why would we bother, you know, even doing that as our number one. We both know it. We'll talk about it a bit at the end. Um, but so what we'll do is we'll do our rest top five of Queen songs, knowing that Bohemian Rhapsody is both our unanimous number one. It goes without saying, and we'll do our top five uh, outside of that. But we'll touch base on it at the end. So I'll let you as the guest start things off. Let's start at our number five Queen song and work our way to number one. So sure. take us away. Number five Queen so, song. What is and it? And again, just, just to put this in context, this is my personal top five favorite Queen songs. Uh, well, 
number two to six, if you will, if we take Bohemian Rhapsody out of the mix. Um, these aren't the ones that made the most money. These aren't the ones that charted the best. These aren't the ones that were on the, the hits parades the longest. These are just the five of their massive library of hits. These are the five songs that I personally like the best. I took the same approach, so good. Yeah. So, I mean, we may get some some feedback from people that'll, you know, disagree. And, hey, that's half the reason we have these dialogues, right, is to, yep. to open up that discussion. So, all right. So, uh, my number five is the song You're My Best Friend. From oh, that's a good one. The album was A Night at the Opera, which yep. is the same album that Bohemian Rhapsody uh, was on. This is my number five. And uh, my five, six, seven picks were all, like, it was literally just pull one out of the hat because you got to after the first few, it's like, ooh, there's so many good ones and they're all this just just squeaked in as my number five, you're my best friend. I love this song. Now you gotta think, nineteen seventy five, what was the music like in nineteen seventy five? If you're thinking like classic rock, I think of things like Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath, where it's a lot of like guitars and a lot of drums. Like it's it's like more what I would consider like classic metal, classic rock. Or you have uh, you know, some of that sort of 60s hippie kind of music still influencing uh, into the 70s as well. But this 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 song, You're My Best Friend, if you had never heard it before and you played it for someone, I think they'd have a hard time pegging down what year it came out. Like I think it, it has sort of almost like a timeless quality where it was in a way a little ahead of its time. It's a very positive song. It's it's very catchy. It's – you know you might almost criticize it by saying it's almost like a formulaic uh, pop song. But like I'm a huge, huge fan of 80s music and to me, I listen to this and I hear a lot of the stuff that became popular in the 80s even though this song was 1975 and – you know, it's been used in, in pop culture in a lot of places. You see it show up in movies and commercials and stuff. Uh, this was my number five. I love this song. And, I mean, it's just such a positive song with a positive message. It is. It's a great song. I love the fact that they use the, uh, the sort of the electric piano to do that song and stuff like that. And 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 I always – a lot of times will run things by my wife, right? And I'll be like, oh, you know, I like this. I like this. And I'm, I talk about pop culture all the time. And this is one – and this is not just her. I've had a couple of other people, I think, have mentioned this to me before that have said that is the one song that they didn't know was Queen. Yeah. That I'll have people that listen to it go, I didn't know that was Queen. I've heard that song before. I didn't know that was them, you know, so that's a good pick. I like that one. Okay, my number five, I'm going with uh, from the 1984 uh, album, The Works, Hammer to Fall. And for me, the thing I like about Hammer to Fall is that it the song doesn't just come off. It's not just a song. It's almost like an anthem. You know, and this was this was in the Live Aid concert. It was the third song that they sang in their set. Um, I kind of always back in the day kind of took it as a bit of a Cold War kind of anthem, you know, like they talk about Mushroom Cloud and Surrender and stuff in the lyrics. But, you know, I read up on it in the band and said, no, no, it's more of just about life and death in general. For me, Queen is bigger than life. And this song is like I said, it's it's an anthem. And, and that's what when they were at their best for me. We're playing songs that were just bigger than life, and this one is so. Hammer to Fall is my number five. Good pick. All right, you know, I, I think I think you're going to find every time each of yeah. us makes a selection, it's going to go. That's a good. Oh, pick. that's a good pick. Yeah, like, exactly. You know, you get to you get if you got to put a list of ten. Well, we'll say eleven with Bohemian Rhapsody. You got to put a list of ten Queen songs together. I don't think you're going to have any bad picks on no. that list. So, just, if you're they're fan, so good. You're fan. Yeah. Okay, uh, my number four. I think a lot of people would actually put higher up on their list. My number four is another one bites the dust oh, from 1980s 
the game. Now this, in my, in my memory, so I was born in 74, so I would have been six, seven years old when this sort of first became a, a hit. And this is one of the first Queen songs that I remember. Like very, in a very young, I got into music, like six, seven years old. I remember I got a stereo for Christmas with a record player, a tape deck, double tape deck, actually radio. And I was constantly recording songs off the radio. And like at a very young age, I got right into pop culture, pop music. And I remember this song, Another One Bites the Dust, being a big hit when I first started to gain my own interests in music. It was just so different than everything else that was out. It's like, yes. you know, disco was sort of ending, right? We're in 1980, but it would have been conceived of in the late 70s when disco was big. It's got that bass, which to me always sounds very disco. and But it's like also got enough of that rock flavor that when disco dies, another one bites the dust, carries on. And uh, it's, it's, you know, it's just so memorable. Um, I also remember around that time, there was a commercial for, I want to say, Coffee Crisp Chocolate Bars, where it was a bunch of guys rowing. And they were using this song, Another One Bites It, or at least the music, and they were like eating their coffee crisps. And I just, as a young kid, I'm sort of like, hey, that's a song I know <laughs> and like, but not really sort of putting two and two together. Like, hey, bands can sell songs to use in commercials and make right. money. Like, I couldn't wrap my head around why this, why, like, how these things came together, but it always just stuck with me. Um, a couple interesting sort of side bits about Another One Bites It Us. Um, when you're doing CPR, you need to do CPR compressions, chest compressions at a certain like rate, certain number of beats per minute. And Another One Bites the Dust is one of the perfect songs where if you know the song and you're doing CPR and you can sing the song in your head, the chest compressions on the beat are exactly where they're supposed to be. Although if you're singing to yourself Another One Bites the Dust while you're doing chest compressions, not really the best karma. <laughs> but uh, for those who, who – uh, are interested the song staying alive by the Bee Gees is apparently at exactly the same number of beats per minute so that one's a little more upbeat so just a little side note. you know it's funny you know you mentioned before about uh, zeppelin because you were saying like around the 75 you know when queen started first coming out um you know zeppelin was big and stuff like that and and i've had i've heard a lot of people you know kind of compare queen and zeppelin because you know they came out around the same time they both have like probably the number one and two vocalists of all time you know in in the band and the thing is, though, they're so different because, like, Zeppelin to me is, and I, I don't mean this in a bad way, but to me, Zeppelin was always kind of, I don't know if this is the right word, but sloppy. And and, and I mean that, like, if you listen to, like, if, if you play, like, I, I play guitar. So, like, a lot of Jimmy Page's guitar is just kind of, like, eclectic. It's just kind of all over the place. It just feels a little sloppy, but it feels, it's good. Like, he's an amazing guitar player, and he's incredible, but it, he just kind of feels loosey-goosey with everything. You know what I mean? Like, the notes are kind of in order. They're not. You know, he's kind of, you know, he's not, you know, technically really, really sound. And then you've got Queen, who is just the complete opposite. Like, mm. their their music is razor sharp, tight, tight, tight. And there's no better song uh, that displays it than this one, because just the, the beginning... Just that bass. First of all, very few songs start out with a bass riff. Oh, absolutely. When I, when my uh, when we were growing up, one of my buddies, uh, very good guitar player, picked up guitar in high school. He has these exceptionally long fingers. He can palm a basketball, and it's like crazy. Like he's just got this incredible wingspan on his fingers. I have these short, stubby, fat little fingers. And so he's like, "Let's start a band." And he's like, "Look," because he's learning guitar, and he's like, "Man, it's so easy." And he's like, "You should play bass." I'm like, "Bass, really?" And this was one of the songs he pointed to. He's like, "Look, the bass in the right hands with the right." composition like this song is cool because of the bass and i'm like 
yeah, maybe I can. And then I'm like, no, these short, fat, stubby little fingers, not a chance. I'm like, you want me in this band? I'll do some vocals. But that's where this ends. And of course, we, uh, you know, we never got, <laughs> we never did anything with that. But but I should point out, Cave, that that you and I though have got together on many occasions in the past and spent all night uh, playing <laughs> rock band together. So we have that, yes. you know, playing rock band. Yeah. Well, it's that love of music. Exactly. Uh, one other interesting uh, little side note, but another one bites the dust. Yeah. And I don't know if this is true or not, but I've heard it in a couple of places. Apparently, you know, it's on the album, they're performing in concerts, but uh, for whatever reason, the band or possibly even Freddie Mercury himself didn't feel it was strong enough to be a single. And of all people, Michael Jackson heard this song li- perform live and apparently knew the band and, and said to them like, you know, you have to put this out as a single. And like, this would have been before Thriller. This, I mean, Michael Jackson would have been huge at this point, Mm -hmm. but this is before Michael Jackson, like rockets into the stratosphere as, you know, the king of pop. So you got to think like, he's still influential as a musician at this point. And, and he's telling a guy like Freddie Mercury, who, you know, if you sort of look at them on a scale of music at that point, Freddie Mercury is probably still atop of Michael Jackson. A couple of years later, Michael Jackson passes everybody. Right. But, you know, you get Michael Jackson coming up to you at that point and saying, like, this is a great song. You need to release it as a single. Like, you obviously take them seriously. And they did. And look, I, I, I got to think it hit number one. Um, so it's always interesting how you sort of get to the end of some of these uh some of these little stories. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, my number four, I'm going way back. I'm going back to the first song of their first album, and that's Keep Yourself Alive. So this this is basically the song that introduced Queen to the world, right? But it's so much more than that to me because this song captures absolutely everything about them as a band. Like, especially early on when they were first starting out, like the song has a ton of energy. It's got those rapid fire vocals. It's got a drum solo in it. And the vocals are from different members of the band. They all take turns singing in it. And, you know, if you look back in history, like when it was released, it was basically ignored. You know, it it gets, I think, painfully little love from mainstream audiences. That's what I think. But for me, this song is absolutely outstanding. I think it's one of their very best. And if you want to taste, like if, if all you know about Queen is kind of like their later stuff, like if you know Another One Bites the Dust and Bohemian Rhapsody and that kind of stuff, but if you want a taste of what they were like when they first kind of burst onto the scene, go back and listen to Keep Yourself Alive. Because, and I was really happy to see that they used this song in the movie. Um, there was a scene early on when they were riding the buses and they were touring all the smaller venues when they were starting out. And there was like this montage scene and uh, they played Keep Yourself Alive. And I thought that was really cool because, like I say, this song represents the band when they were first getting started. And the best word I could use to describe this song is just wild, you know? And it is. I think if, if you only remember, like I say, Queen for that experimental later stuff, man, you got to go back. Queen absolutely rocked. And if you listen to this song... It, it gives you not only a, a, an insight as to how, how much they could rock, but I think it also gave you a bit of, a, of, of, a, of an insight into the band that they were going to become. You know, like they were singing to the audience. They were having the crowd sing along. They knew that they knew their audience so well. And, and they knew that the audience knew that that song was about them. It wasn't about the band. It was about the audience. And that early connection that the band had with the audience, I think, was a sign of things to come. Keep yourself alive, number four. Nice. Um, yeah, no, I, I gotta agree. I'm gonna actually build on something you said here in a second with my uh, number three pick. So sure. my number three pick, I really don't have anything else to add, Chris. I think you for your keep yourself alive again. Great, so tune. good. Oh, I think you nailed song. it. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. All right, my number three is Radio Gaga. Oh, good, good one. 
always loved this Queen song. And as I mentioned a little bit earlier and as I mentioned before, I love music videos. Like, I love music videos. I have 200 channels on my cable, and I pay extra above and beyond those 200 channels to have an all-80s music video channel in my lineup. And I probably watch that about as much as I watch the sports channel, and I watch a lot of hockey. So I love, love, love me some music videos. And one of the things I love about this song is I thought it had a great video. Uh, you know, a lot of Queen's songs – Again, given that they they were big in the seventies and early eighties before music was it, videos, was it sorry interrupt? Was it Metropolis? Wasn't yes. that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's exactly where I was going to go. Yeah. Like references Metropolis. It cuts into some of the stuff from that, and the um, the stage musical um, We Will Rock You uh, builds on a lot of the themes that were in the song Radio Gaga that were in the video. Um, the the uh, the stage play sort of you know where they take all the different Queen songs and I don't know. Did you ever see it, Chris? What's that? We will rock you. The stage play. No, the, I have not. The, no, no. Sorry, I have not seen. it. I have not either. I'm is, a, is it I, in know, Toronto? It was. It, I mean, it toured around, and then I want to say Tom Cruise stars in the music in the movie, if I remember correctly. Oh, I think uh, something like that. I was always worried that, you know, as much as I would enjoy hearing the songs, they wouldn't be as good as the Freddie Mercury. Like, no one's going to sing Freddie Mercury as good as Freddie Mercury. So nope. why why waste your time by listening to it? Is that that, that probably a bad thing to say, right? But. Um, no, but anyway, true. Uh, let's let's cycle back. So Radio Gaga, love the song. Uh, it's from the album The Works, came out in 1984, right in my sweet spot in the mid 80s. The video was great. Um, and you were talking about with um, uh, how Freddie Mercury and Queen uh, really got the audience involved. You see a lot of their big, they're like a lot of their biggest songs. There's a lot of audience participation. Uh, you, you get the audience involved. And Radio Gaga has a lot of that great stuff where everyone in the audience is clapping to the beat and you get them with the hands over their head, clap, clap, radio, goo, goo, clap, clap, radio, gaga, clap, clap. And you saw it at the Live Aid where it's like everyone in Wembley Stadium is like just clapping and you're like, wow. Like talk about, uh, you know, this is a very – I have every – like I, I would be shocked to, to believe it's not. This was a deliberate choice to make this song in this way with the clapping in the song in such a way that you know every time it's performed live, every single person is going to be clapping along. And just the spectacle of that <laughs> from the stage – Right, like in the audience, that's great. But just think about the musician themselves. Like the musician Amazing. is there to put on a show, and basically the audience is now putting on a show for the musician. It's yeah, like it's so that awesome. give take. It's so deliberate and it's so great, and it makes everyone it like. Just this song is so great. I love it so much. It's again, it's another one with like a positive message, and uh, you know, I mean, so many of Queen's songs are so very positive. So I, I love this song. Number three, my pick, Radio Gaga. You mentioned something earlier that I just want to build on as well. You were saying how the list of top five Queen songs shouldn't be necessarily just be like their most musically sound or their most popular. No, it's the ones that, that are personal to you. And my number three is definitely very, very personal to me. So. A little story. When I was 10 years old, my best friend at the time and I would, we would, we live in Canada, you know, so we would shovel Wait, snow. Wait, dude, you're kidding me. I know, <laughs> but, but to, you know, to people listening, right? Gotcha. So like we would shovel snow out of people's driveways to earn enough money to go to the movies. And in 1980, a movie came out that me and my, my friend just loved so much. We went back to, we went back over and over to see this movie. I shoveled so much snow out of so many driveways to go back and see this movie. As a side story, Cave, you mentioned hockey earlier and so just triggered it. Uh, my buddy actually went on to have a career in the NHL. 
of all things. So go nice. figure. Um, it was Louis DeBrusque. Um, but oh, his son plays on the Bruins. He, cert- he certainly He's does. He's doing awesome. Yep, yep. So Louis and I would like go and shovel driveways so we could get enough money to go and watch uh, this, you know, the movies. And the movie that came out in 1980 that we just loved was Flash Gordon. And we would go to see Flash Gordon so many times over and over again. And the movie was a total bomb. I didn't care. I loved it. I don't care. I just, I recently, I let my nine-year-old son watch Flash Gordon. And he just loves it too. And Queen does the opening song to it, Flash's theme. And it's my number three song. Um, I love the way that the movie opens up. You know, it's bigger than life, just like Queen itself, right? So the song is everything that I love about Queen. It's got that, that snappy bass line to open the song, like we were just talking about with Another One Bites the Dust. It's It's got crisp guitar it's got those over-the-top lyrics and and, and the, the the vocals you know i think it's musically creative too like like brian may used a grand piano with like a lower octave on it to really get those low notes at the beginning um i also like how in the song it's done over top of the, as the movie is is opening like there's actually dialogue in the movie that's over top like remember gordon's alive you know yeah. oh man the, the song was not a hit at all it didn't crack the top 40 on billboard so just like the movie not much of a hit but <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't care man i loved it i still do and whenever i hear this song i, I just, something about it just makes me sit up and take notice there, there's something about flash's theme that just commands your attention at least it does for me so it's my number three yeah, that was going to be one of my honorable mentions if we didn't cover it. Uh, like you, it's sort of got a soft spot in my heart. I, I like it. It's certainly not my favorite Queen song, uh, but uh, whenever – like I have a Queen playlist on my phone. It's got like you know 40 or 50 Queen songs. Whenever that one comes on, it brings a smile to my yeah. to my to myself. And uh, I've mentioned before in the podcast, I'm a big fan of Seth MacFarlane, Family Guy, American Dad. And so he's got the, the movies Ted and Ted 2 about the, the talking teddy bear that comes to life. Yep. And um, – Oh my God, I'm blanking on his name. The guy who played Flash, Sam. Oh, Sam uh, Jones. Sam Jones, thank yep. you. Wow, can't believe I blanked on that. Sam Jones is in both movies. The first one more so than the second one. I don't know if you've seen them or not, but it it basically the 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 guy, the main character in the movie, uh, much like you just described, grew up watching the movie Flash Gordon and like idolized him. And when they get to meet him in real life, they're like, Oh my God, he's <laughs> everything so cool. we imagined and more. It's, and it's, it's just like it it was like a good way to. Uh, to rejuvenate that song, to, to introduce it to a whole new generation of people who watch and love Family Guy but have no idea what Flash Gordon is. And it's right. like, you know what? Seth MacFarlane is probably not much uh, older than we are or younger than we are. And he's like, I'm going to put this – I'm going to make this a part of my movie. Just reintroduce this to a whole new generation of people. You know, in your defense, it, it is pretty easy to forget about Sam Jones because, I mean, he never <laughs> really did, went on to do much. And the funny thing with, with Flash Gordon in that movie, Dino De Laurentiis hated Sam Jones so much that he ended up going back and – dubbed over all of his lines so when you watch the movie not one word that comes out of his mouth is actually his voice they redubbed <laughs> I, his I whole his whole performance oh anyway that's another thing altogether nice. so on to your number two what do you got bud all right my number two and for a minute there i almost made this my number one even ahead of bohemian rhapsody that's how much i Ooh. like this song wow. and it is don't stop me now oh, 1978 from the album jazz this is probably more of a a dancey pop song than a rock song. It's again, whenever I hear it, I tap my foot, I sing along, I hum it in my head. It's it's one of those songs where you hear it once and all day long I'm humming it, I'm singing it, I'm tapping my foot. I'm like, I gotta hear this song again. Um I I just I absolutely love this song. If I'm having a crappy day and I hear this song, it 
always picks me up. Always, always. Just something. The music is so positive and so happy and so pleasurable. And again, like so many of the other songs on my list, positive message. Don't stop me now. And it's like he's like, you know, everything is great. And it's just boom. There it is. And this one being from the late 70s, 1978, definitely has that sort of disco-y influence but mm-hmm. i would not call it a disco song definitely i would lean more towards the idea of a dance song like a club song something that probably would have been played in the clubs more than you know say bohemian rhapsody which you certainly can't dance to right um but this this uh lo- i love it it's like it's it's just such a positive song and such a, it makes me feel so good every time i listen to it i mean i'm probably not articulating i'm channeling yancey now i'm not articulating this very well sorry yancey <laughs> not, didn't mean to take a jab at you but uh, you, you know when yancey really gets excited about something and he sort of like can't express it that's exactly how i'm feeling now about this song it's like i love it so much i just can't come up with the words to describe how much i love it and how great it makes me feel and and how happy i am every single time i hear it well that's a great song right so okay my number two i'm gonna slow things down a little bit for my number one i have said this before i'll say it again freddie mercury greatest singer of all time and the thing is throughout his career throughout his you know discography with queen he had a lot of opportunity to show off his vocal range and his vocal skills right on a whole bunch of songs but for me no song shows off his ability to sing better than the 1976 song from A Day at the Races, Somebody to Love. Knew it. This song is probably why I love Queen so much, because not only can they rock, they can also like do slow songs like nobody's business. Like, And the other thing I like about them is they're at, they have this ability to like fuse musical styles kind of all together into one. And they do that here with somebody to love. Like, it's easy to kind of brush it off as just a ballad, but it's so much more than that. Like, it's got sort of gospel in it. it it's got this sort of orchestral quality with the vocals. Like, they do multi-layered vocals in it, right? And it sounds like a choir. Like, And, and it's so funny because they were so good in the studio because that all those multi-layered vocals you hear in this song, it's just Mercury, May, and Taylor. Just three guys, you know? But the for me, the range of vocals that you get from Mercury in this song, are, it's just unreal. Like, nobody could sing like this guy. The, the run he does, especially at the end of the song, you know, like, just wow. And, and I know, like, lots of people have sung this song. I remember I used to hear it all the time when I'd watch American Idol. And I'm like, why are you, why are you singing this song? I have no idea why you'd want to take on such a big song. Nobody ever does it. Any good. Although George Michael um, did it. At, they had a Freddie Mercury tribute concert in Wembley in 92 and yep. George Michael did a really good job of this song but still there was no one like Freddie and for me he was never better vocally than he was in this song so somebody loves my number one, number two yeah no I agree this this is a great song you know I think this was uh, I think I might overlook this one on my list to be honest with you this as soon as you mention it I'm like crap this one should have been on my top five yeah so uh, good it is. It is. Yeah, it is excellent. Exactly like you said. It's. It, it demonstrates the range. He goes high. He goes low. He holds the notes for a long time. He's got. Yeah. It's. It's. Again. It's great. One thing I will mention though. So, mm-hmm. when I listen to music, like I, 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 at my work, I can listen to music while I work for large parts of my day, and nice. I do most days. And some days I just have you know the streaming media that gives me a little bit of everything. But I can I can be very selective. And um, I've been listening to the Queen playlist a lot over the last week in preparation for this show partly and the thing is when i'm at work i only listen to it through one earbud because i need to be able to hear what people are saying around me or you know 
So I, I, one thing that's always I found interesting, and this always seemed to be more indicative of, of music from the 70s when it was being done on a record, and I find it happens less now when everything is digital, is they really played with the left channel, right channel. And yes. I find the Queen songs, you will very often get a high note in one ear, a low note in the other ear, or you'll have, you know, just the bass in one side and the vocals in the right. So I hear a lot of these songs now just through the one channel and it's almost like hearing them again for the first time in some cases. And you often you'll get like just the background vocals in the left and the foreground main vocals in the right. Well, I don't have the right ear in. I'm only hearing the left and you're suddenly hearing, you know, like with somebody to love you, you you're hearing the, the, you know, the very faint sort of build up in the background for a lot of it. And it's, it just impresses you even that much more about how great some of these songs are when you yep. can start to pick apart the little bits and pieces that, when you hear it on the radio or you hear it streaming through your computer, you just hear it all at once and it's great. But when you can sort of break it down and go, well, what's happening in the right? What's happening in the left? Oh, it's a little different. So anyway, that's, that's somebody to love is, is definitely one of those ones where if you have the opportunity to put them in with the earbuds, try listening to the song just with one ear or the other, or, you know, alternate, let's do it twice. I think you'll enjoy it. Very cool. Good idea. Yeah. Okay. On to your number one. What do you got? Number one. Okay. So this is again, assuming Bohemian Rhapsody's off the table. We agree. That's number one outside of Bohemian Rhapsody. My number one under pressure featuring David Bowie from Love the it. 1982 album, hot space. So I, I sort of cheated a little on this one. Uh, although I love Queen and they you, you, all like Okay, sorry, go ahead. Absolutely no, yeah. make my, you know, if you said, what are your top five favorite bands mm-hmm. ever? Absolutely ever. You're on a desert island. You have the complete music catalog of five bands and no one else. Although if you're on a completely desert, desert island, I don't know how you're going to play those things. But let's put that aside. It's a magical land where the records still work. Queen absolutely makes my top five. No question. But my number one is David Bowie, hands down, all the time, all day long, never waver. Bowie's my number one, always has been. And I mentioned at the top of the show when we were talking about the passing of Stan Lee, when David Bowie died a few years ago, that was one of the first like sort of celebrities uh, that when he died, I felt a loss. Like it made me weep. It, it, I was bummed out for a long time. Bowie's music is so influential on so many people, artists and fans. He was, you know, he was just such an influence. He, because of him, so many other musical genres were created. People experimented with their music and did that. And so if you can get my number one band with, let's say another band that's in my top five doing a song together, how does this not make the list at the how does this right. not top the list like so now it's a great song in its own right don't get me wrong uh it would definitely have made my list either way but uh i love under pressure um now i have to admit didn't really know under pressure that much as a younger as a young lad uh it came out in 82 and again i was still pretty young at that point and uh you know i didn't really remember it from my younger days and i'm kind of embarrassed to admit that i re visited this song in the early 90s after Vanilla Ice put out Ice Ice Baby, which was also a song I really liked because I was like 14 years old. And everyone's like, you know, he's totally ripping off Queen. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And they're like, yeah, you know where that music comes from? It comes from Under Pressure. I'm like, you're kidding me. And it forced me to go back and pick it up and listen to Under Pressure and be like, oh my God, this song is amazing. Like I thought Ice Ice Baby was good, but again – in context, we're talking 1990, 1991 when it came out. It was a huge hit. Uh, yeah, I went back and I'm like, wow, Under Pressure, this song is outstanding. No wonder somebody wants to borrow the music. This is great. 
And so, uh, you know, I quickly forgot about Vanilla Ice. But Under Pressure has remained on my playlist. <laughs> Many of us wish we could. Every day since then. And uh, <laughs> it's just so great. It's, it's you know, I can't say enough good things about it. And I read some of the little background about, like, how they put the song together and how it was, like, supposed to be a jam session. And Bowie was there to do backup vocals for a totally different track. And they were just like, well, since you're here, let's jam. And it was a lot of, like, off the cuff, off the fly. Hey, we've come up with this riff. Hey, just, like, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? And they would just rhyme out some lyrics. And uh, it's amazing how... When the right pieces come together, the puzzle fits. And it seems like Under Pressure was one of those things that was like destined to happen. You get these people in this place at this time and they start doing this thing. Art happens and not just any art. It's not literally throw the painting against the wall. It's throw the painting against the wall and wow, it's a Jackson Pollock. And you're like, wow, how did that happen? That's how I feel with Under Pressure. It's like all of the exact pieces that needed to come together came together and I don't want to say it's a perfect song, but it is an exceptional song, and it is absolutely, without a doubt, my number one. So your choice of Under Pressure as your number one song, I have only one thing to say to you, my friend. Word to your mother. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I mentioned earlier that I liked Hammer to Fall, right? Because it's more of an anthem than a song, and the greatest rock and roll anthem of all time in my mind there's no question on this one the greatest rock anthem ever is my number one queen song and that is we are the champions you talk about vocals you know we mentioned on this last song oh man how freddie hits the high c note in this song unbelievable like it's it's mind-boggling it's mind-boggling to me and the thing is he does it both in falsetto and naturally crazy crazy and you know going back to the live aid concert to be able to do this to be able to pull this off vocally like while commanding the stage and having millions of people watch you around the world like it's just it's unbelievable you know um i think i think truly great songs speak to all people all around the world you know and this song speaks to everyone you know to me it's it's the one song that's kind of like the ultimate unifier of people. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter your race, your culture, anything. This song is it. I also love the fact that it was in Revenge of the Nerds. I was just about to say that. <laughs> I was just about to say that. That is where I first remember hearing this song was at the end of Revenge of the Nerds, which is everything you just said. It's like, you know, contrary to your podcast where Yancey clearly pointed out that that movie does not hold up and does yeah. not age well. <laughs> Whatever. The theme of these misfits that don't fit in and don't belong, but it doesn't make them any less important. And at the end, the movie ends with we are the champions. And that was my earliest memory of this song. And yeah, absolutely. This is a great song. Isn't, and- isn't that what queen was all about though? Isn't that what, what made the audience like gravitate toward them so much that it didn't matter if you were, if you felt different, if you thought you looked different or, you know, you were different, it didn't matter. None of that mattered. All that mattered was the music and how it brought you together. And, you know, you could be the champion in your own mind, you know, like it's, there's just something about the band. Like I said, the the band was bigger than life. Freddie was bigger than life. And for me, this song was bigger than life. So it's my number one. That's all there is to it. But uh, one thing that we did say, and I just want to kind of loop back to it for a little bit, is that we, we did mention Bohemian Rhapsody is kind of like, we know that's, it's not just the best Queen song. Let's be honest. It is one of the greatest songs ever written. Yeah, I'll give you that. Absolutely. 
like unbelievable. And to think of it as that a rock band put this out, you know, like, like, and I thought that was interesting in the movie when, when the Mike Myers character is like, what the hell is this song? Like he, he's like a record executive, right? And he's like, what the hell is this? What is it? It's like opera. What do you, what is this Scaramouche stuff? Like, what, <laughs> what is, what is, this isn't, I, I need a rock and roll song. And especially if, if you think about it, like, Queen at the time, like I say, if you listen to like um, Keep Yourself Alive, you're like, oh man, this band rocks, right? And then also they come on, they drop this one on you. You're like, what is this? You know, it's just so unique, so unbelievably original. The band is so, like they're all classically trained musicians, you know, who obviously command their craft like nobody else's business. Like Bohemian Rhapsody is just, it's iconic. It's just unbelievably iconic. And and yeah, so I mean, it's obviously the, the movie they named the movie after the song. You know, it's it's their it's their greatest song. It really, really is. Yeah, and uh, uh, you know, I think that we we both we both remember because we were around in the the mid '90s when uh, Wayne's World, the movie Wayne's World, came out. Oh yeah, it, it gave a resurgence to Bohemian Rhapsody. This is a song that now, at that point, was almost 20 years old. It was it was already a classic, but you know, you weren't hearing it on the radio. And Mike Myers uses it in Wayne's World. And suddenly, it's back in the top 40 charts again. It, it and... catapulted it back into the zeitgeist of pop culture as a result of that movie, because that movie was just so popular when it came out. Like, like for those people that weren't there in 92 when Wayne's World came out, like, that movie was big. <laughs> like, it was huge. And, yeah. Um, yeah, no, it was big. And that's and that's them playing that song and bopping along to it in the car. It was just, it was an iconic scene in, in that movie. And like you say, it threw that Queen song back into the mainstream again and gave it new life all over again. Yeah, I was reading a thing after so uh, after the uh, Bohemian Rhapsody movie, and they were interviewing somewhere. Again, this might have even been in the IMDb trivia, but it was saying how when Wayne's World came out and they re-released Bohemian Rhapsody, there wasn't a real video for it because, again, it was from the early 70s. But they had concert footage. So they spliced together concert footage and intermixed it with scenes from Wayne's World where the guys are in the, in the car <laughs> singing it. Right. And it kept cutting back and forth because that's how you did a, a music video for a band that doesn't actually appear in a movie. But when the movie's big, you want people to remember, hey, this is from your favorite movie. Watch the video, buy the record. And um, apparently Mike Myers had zero uh, – he had no idea they were doing that. And when he saw it, he was appalled. He's like, oh, my God, we've ruined this Queen song. What the hell? We were we were trying to pay it the the biggest respect by putting in our movie, and the studio just killed it. And apparently, uh, he he had his people reach out to Queen, uh, and was basically he apologized prophetically. He was like, you know, please, please, I had no idea they would do this. I would have never allowed it. This this to me is a travesty. You know, it, 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 we didn't want to introduce. We weren't trying to insert ourselves into what is your greatest song. And apparently, the guys in Queen were like. We loved it. We thought it came out great. <laughs> That's we awesome. love the fact that you used it in your movie. We thought the video was great. It's bringing new fans to our music. And they're like, we think Freddie would have loved it. And, you know, don't even worry about it. And apparently Mike Myers was on cloud nine after that. He was like, oh, my God, they freaking loved it. <laughs> so, yeah. I thought it was interesting that two of Queen albums, uh, A Night at the Opera from 75 and A Day at the Races from the next year in 76, they're both named after Marx Brothers movies. I, I don't know the significance of that or if. I don't know if they did that on purpose. If anyone knows, send me an email. Let me know. But uh, I don't know. I noticed that. I thought that was interesting. I, I didn't realize that until you mentioned it. Yeah. So anyway, okay. Are you ready now to have some fun with Caveman? Okay. You want to have some fun tonight, Caveman? I Absolutely. We, I, I always have some fun. I, 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 clean. I'm already having fun. I'm going to have a beer if you don't mind. Do the same. <laughs> I don't Is mind that okay? at all. Okay. So here's what we, I decided to do to have some fun with you. 
we we mentioned obviously we're talking about Queen and we mentioned Bohemian Rhapsody the the biopic. So I thought a neat subject might be that we would talk about musicians in movies. So so here's how it works. Really really easy. I'm just I just I'll name a movie, and all you have to do is name the musician who appears in the film. Easy enough, right? I got to make some. I'm gonna start off easy, but I got to make some of these hard because the thing is, every time we have you on and you do trivia with me, like you're really good. So <laughs> you do you do really good on the trivia. So I got to try and you know trick you up a little bit. So, All right. So you prepared? I, I I name the movie. You name the musician that stars in it. Okay. Right. Well, I, I, let me preface this by saying if if your movie is really old, like you know Chris type mu- movies wait, from wait, like. Yeah, what, are you, you're, what, are, what are you, four years younger than me? I mean, come on. You know what I mean? Chris old. What's all this stuff? I'm so, oh man, I hope I don't. All right. Okay. Lay it on me. Lay it on oh, me. Oh, man. I hope I don't die before we get through this segment. I mean, I'm so old. Okay. So I, I named the movie. You tell me the musician who stars in the film. Okay. Last right, week, we, we, you know, you were on the show with me and we talked about the, uh, the 96 Billy Bob Thornton movie, Sling Blade, right? Yes. What musician also starred in the movie? Oh, uh. Was a country singer. Yep. Um, oh, it was. Uh, uh, Time's up. It was Dwight it, it, Dwight Yoakam. Dwight. Dwight Yoakam. No, it wouldn't. You could have given me ten minutes. That wouldn't have come up. I could picture him, but I couldn't yeah. think of his name. Okay, one of your favorite movies of all time, Caveman. Back to the Future. What musician was in that movie? Huey Lewis. Yes, very good. All Sorry, right, guys. Too darn loud. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. He was. He was so good. Uh, okay, here's here's one for you from 1980. Nine to five. Easy one, nine to five. Dolly Parton. Yes, of course it is Dolly Parton. She was going to the roads. Okay. Let me for a second. Yeah. Speaking of music videos. Yeah, sure. The music video for nine to five by Dolly Parton. <laughs> right. Every rotation right now on my video channel, and so it's uh, if you've never seen this video or you haven't seen it in a long time, it's hilarious. So it starts with Dolly Parton, like. At a concert, well, it's probably in a in a studio, and she's sitting there, and she's you know she's singing along, and and you know everything. It's it's a, it's a boring video at the beginning. Then, when she gets to the chorus, it just cuts into scenes of the movie, and like a title card comes up and says, "These are scenes from the hit movie Nine to Five, starring <laughs> Dolly Parton." It's like thanks, but I guess. It's, it's from a time when music videos were brand new, and they're like, "Geez, we better uh, we better tell people where this yeah. stuff is from." Like, we didn't do this just for the music video, and it's like, "Yeah, no kidding." <laughs> so I laugh every time I see it because I love. This, I leave it play, and it's like, "Oh my god, this video is so <laughs> that's bad. hilarious." Okay, so here's another easy one. You mentioned Wayne's World, right? From '92. Yeah. Who's the musician that showed showed up in that movie? Oh, geez. Uh, Alice Cooper. Yes. Very good. Remember, he was talking about the origins of Milwaukee and all that stuff. You're not worthy. Okay. 1997. Oh, God. What musician was in Oh, God? I I don't even know that movie. Wasn't George Burns in that? Yes, he was. The musician. What? The musician? Any any guesses? No, I'm not familiar with the movie. It it was John Denver. John Denver was in that one. Okay. Okay, here's one, because I know you're a movie buff like I am, and you also like Canadian films, so I think you're going to be able to get this one. 1983's Videodrome. Oh, that's a Cronenberg movie, right? Yes. Uh, James no. Woods was in it. Who was the musician that starred with I, I have no idea. It was Debbie Harry. Debbie From Harry. Blondie? Yeah, Blondie herself. Debbie Harry was in it. Yeah, okay. All right, so here's a relatively easy one, I think, from uh, 75. The Rocky Horror Picture Show. Who's the uh, musician? That would be meatloaf. Yes, he was Eddie. He was the main course at dinner. Of course, you got that one. All right, so here's an easy one. Okay, so it's so easy. I want you to name two. A lot of musicians are in this movie. 
Okay. So you name any two musicians that were in the Blues Brothers. Aretha Franklin. Yep, there's one. <laughs> Can I say the Blues Brothers? Do no, they count? no, they don't count. Come <laughs> on, there's all kinds of other ones. Uh, you know, I can't. I can think of the songs, but I can't think of who performs them. Sorry. Oh, man, it's one of my uh, favorite movies of all time. Who does the hidey, 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 hi, hoody, ho? I can't think of that guy's name. Cab Calloway. Oh, yeah, no, jeez. And then I was, I... there was also James Brown. Remember, he did Old Landmark. John Lee Hooker. Ray Charles. Ray's Music oh, Exchange. How did I not think of oh. Steve Lawrence. Shaka Khan. Oh, they're just not telling you. Okay, here's a newer one from 2007. Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End. Uh oh. Um, kind of a cameo. Alicia Keys. What's that? Alicia Keys. No, no. It was Keith Richards. Oh, jeez, yeah. Played Captain Teague. Okay, uh, I'm going way back again. I thought I got to make give you a couple really hard yeah. ones because you're really, really good at these. These have been pretty hard so far. Oh man, I thought these were easy. Now I got a couple of really hard ones for you. Yeah, I'm gonna okay. see how this goes. All right, 1982s. Come back to the five and dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. I've never heard of it. I have no idea. What? It was Cher's movie debut, and she was sure. really good in it, too. Come on. You couldn't have said Moonstruck? Who was in Moonstruck? Yeah, well, that's too easy. Okay. How about okay. Convoy? Who was the singer that was in Convoy? I, I don't, again, never seen the movie. No idea. Jeez, it was Chris Christopherson. Okay. I was say, got to be a country singer, though, yeah. All right. Here's a Nicholson film from the early 70s, Carnal Knowledge. Who was the singer in Carnal Knowledge with him? Don't know. Never seen it. Art Garfunkel. Oh. oh man, I can't believe. How about, okay, I'll make an easy one. How about Annie Hall? Seventy-seven's Annie Hall. What musician played a role? Uh, Paul Simon. Yes, very good. Art Garfunkel's partner. There you go. So, and then the last one. This one's a really hard one. This is from UK. Nineteen eighty prison escape film. Mick Vicker. Do you remember Mick Vicker? No, don't even. No, I've never heard of it. Roger Daltrey. Oh man, I was able to get you on a bunch of these. I. No oh, kidding! Awesome. Wow. Okay, here. Normally, this, this, normally you just back at you for a second, Chris. What's that? This is one that I thought I'm going to throw this back at you. This is one I thought you were going to give me as a low, as a low wall. If Yancey was on the show, I think he would know the answer. to This in the uh, in the um, post apocalyptic. Oh God! Movie, oh God! The post the postman. <laughs> yeah. Starring Kevin Costner. Which which musician makes a appearance in that movie um oh i was really hoping that you were going to say a matt damon film matt damon <laughs> matt damon but oh man that was a, so the postman that was uh what you said 97 yeah that sounds right somewhere in that neighborhood i don't know i have no idea who was it tom petty oh see yeah see yancy would have got that he loved that tom two of yancy's boxes post-apocalyptic and tom petty. <laughs> and tom petty all in one like yeah. a great thing. So, geez, that's awesome. So, so I was able to get you on a couple. So this is great. This yeah, makes I didn't me feel so good. Well. This, this is uh, this is payback for some of those times when I give you some really, really hard trivia and you just had no idea. Yeah, I guess so. So I, I, I made it kind of hard. I, I'm sure a lot of people listening going, I, no, I don't even know this one either. But I think yeah. some. I usually I get a lot of tweets and emails of people like I knew those. I knew those. So it's all good. Um, so yeah, usually. Yelling into my thing, Yancy. How do you not know? How that? do you not know this, Yancy? Hopefully, well, people were yelling that about you. So, of course, he doesn't know it. Okay, so um, uh, any any thoughts to wrap things up? What uh, what what else do you got on the go? What do you want to? Th- so next week, you think we should come back? I think Yancy's still going to be away. He's taking an extended vacation right now to get to work on his tan, and he's going to come back looking like George Hamilton. This is great. Or, or his no 
tan. He's going to come back looking yeah. like a ghost. He's pretty pasty looking in the pictures I've seen. It's so funny. <laughs> Yancey and I have never met. We do this show. We've known each other for years. And uh, we're such good friends. And we've never met. But uh, he's really, really white. Um, but um, so next week, if he's still away on vacation, uh, we'll have you back. You want to talk about Stan Lee? You want to do that? Yeah. That sound good? That'd be great. I, I, it's going to really put the clock on me, though, because I could rhyme on for two hours on that particular one. It's going to be mostly you, though, because I've never I was never a big comic book guy. Remember, I like Richie Rich for crying out loud. Well, I don't think Stanley had his hands in the Richie Rich uh, intellectual property, but uh, you know, <laughs> no, I don't you never think know. We may see him make a guest appearance in the next Avengers movie. You know, cameo by Richie Rich. Who knows? Yeah, he, he, yeah, exactly. Stanley <laughs> Stanley does a cameo as Irona, the, the robot maid, oh, and Richie Rich or something. I don't know. Um, so hey, listen. If, if anybody wants to reach uh, Caveman on Twitter, they can do so at Amaron underscore DM. Uh, you can also reach Yancey. Hopefully, he's, we're going to get him back in the studio sometime soon when his vacation's over. You can get him at Yancey. Eaton. And of course, you'll find me at C. McBrien, McBrien's I-E-N. And I would direct you to head over to the, the, the our website at popcojureworld.com. All of our contact information is there. If you have two minutes, if you enjoy the show, head over to iTunes, leave a review for the show. We'd really appreciate it. But uh, until next time, I'll tell you what, this is Chris McBrien on behalf of Yance Eaton on vacation. And of course, caveman Derek Myers himself saying thanks for listening to Pop Culture World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Pop Goes Your World podcast. Continue the conversation on Twitter at C. McBrien or at Yancey Eaton. Please consider leaving a review for the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. Music.